thank you so much for being here uh, this morning. And if I haven't had a chance to wish you a happy new year personally, uh, a very happy new year uh, to you. I want to do two things as we start our uh, series on Colossians this morning. Uh, we're, we're calling it, uh, for, it's a tiny bit cheesy, it's a kind of preacher's gag really. We're calling it Thanks Living as opposed to Thanksgiving. And we will try and sort of unwrap why uh, we've taken uh, that uh, decision. Uh, but I want to do two things. I want, first of all, to, to look at what happens when the gospel takes root in an individual uh, and then into a community. And so just so brilliant to hear Sanjay's uh, story, which in a sense just illustrates everything that we want to say this morning. And then secondly, uh, to think about uh, how all of that lands with us at this particular moment in history. So let's first of all look at what happens when the gospel of Jesus takes root uh, in a person. The first thing that happens, uh, Paul says, is that faith and love uh, spring up uh, from the hope uh, stored uh, in us. And that is a beautiful description about what happens when the seed of the gospel finds its way into our heart and into our mind. Faith and love spring up. It's not any old faith, and it's not any old love. It is faith and love that has its origin, that springs out of the love of Jesus, shown in history, in his incarnation, in his teaching, in his attitude uh, to people who were outside and who were considered uh, to be lost, supremely in his death, powerfully in his resurrection. But of course, we believe that Jesus' resurrection uh, was something that means that his life continues uh, with greater power than ever. And so that love of Jesus is not only something that is rooted in history, but that we experience in this moment. Brilliant to hear uh, Sanjay say it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And of course, uh, many of us understand that. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be spending a whole lot more time looking at some of the really important things uh, that uh, Paul writes to the Colossians about Jesus. And uh, this, uh, the second half of chapter 1 is much loved uh, by many Christians because of the, the clarity but also the wonderful, uh, in a sense, overarching vision of uh, the person and the identity of Jesus. Uh, very much like John's Gospel, rooting Jesus in the very uh, dawn of time, but also uh, focusing in on his powerful love uh, shown on the cross. So we're gonna, not going to anticipate that too much this week, just to say, come back next week and hear that. But the question is, what happens when the seed of the gospel lands in a human life. Head and heart are involved fully. Of course, there are many different starting points. You know, Sanjay's starting point was, uh, you know, that, his upbringing in Mumbai. Uh, our starting points have all been different. But I think all of us would say that at some stage, as the seed of the gospel, whether that was through parents, through friends, through coming to church, through an experience, 
But at some stage, wherever it starts, head and heart are going to be involved. But also at some stage, it's never going to be totally individual. Always, in, as the seed of the gospel drops into our hearts, it therefore draws us into a community. And that community is both a source of joy, because it's a source of encouragement, but like all communities and all families, it's also a place where we rub up against other people and we experience tension and uh, the need to learn grace and the need to learn forgiveness and the need to learn patience. But what happens when the gospel takes root in a human heart and then in a community? We see faith in Jesus and we see love, love for Jesus and love for others welling up in the most beautiful ways. And I hope that's been your experience. And I hope too that if you feel that there's been little or no faith and love welling up inside of you, that you'll be able to take the chance of this series in a sense just to put that directly at God's door and ask for his new life to flow through you again. The second thing that happens is a slow and sure transformation that begins Uh, There's a lot of gardening, growing images here in this passage and throughout uh, Colossians. Uh, Beautiful. The key insight that we have in this passage is that the Christian life is marked by a deepening gratitude. That's Paul's insight in this letter. Uh, Gratitude that is a response to the gospel a response to the good news about what God thinks about men and women in our world and how he loves us. And so his view is that hearing and receiving and understanding of the gospel puts me and puts you in an entirely new place. It is a place of gratitude where we look to God with wonder and with awe and we say, oh my goodness, It will take me eternity to unravel the gratitude that I have to you for your love. It's not a burden of gratitude. It's not like someone, you know, sometimes someone does something for you and you kind of feel, well, I've really got to express thanks to them, kind of out of duty. This is a gratitude of love and a gratitude of wonder. And so that's why we are calling this series Thanks Living. We love the phrase thanksgiving, it's great, and lots to, uh, to, for us to be doing, that is thanksgiving. But Paul would say, you need a bigger word, so let's invent one, thanks living. And in particular, he helps us understand that the expression of our gratitude is not something that is solely done in sung worship, or in private prayer, or even in communal prayer, but that that thanks living is done through every single part of my life. So when we come back to chapter 3, we're going to look at that in much more detail and see the way that Paul urges them that every single component and compartment of their life is something in which they can express gratitude and joy to God. What a liberating vision of life that that is. And we're going to come back to it in chapter 3. It's liberating because it reminds us that, we, we, that the transformation of the gospel, the work that God is doing in us, doesn't come about by 
our willpower, me deciding to be better. It means that I don't need to look the part. I don't need to parade my righteousness in front of other people. I don't need to signal my virtue. I am who I am because of grace, because of a love that is stronger than death. And so this faith and this love well up within me and overflow into all that I do. The third thing that uh, Paul uh, sees as the seed of the gospel drops into a, a heart or a community is that that person or that community is drawn into a life of hope-filled and never-ending prayer. I wonder if that's been your experience. Prayer that is selfless. Prayer that is generous. Prayer that is wholehearted. Prayer that is striving for God's kingdom to grow in our world. Prayer that's rooted in hope. I would say prayer is probably the best antidote to self-pity. I say that to myself because I think these last two years have been a continual invitation to self-pity. Prayer is mysteriously but definitely how God builds his kingdom, how God changes our world. It's prayer that's not dutiful. It's not begrudging. Paul describes it in chapter 4 as like wrestling. So prayer is not for wimps. It's not passive. Active. But just look back later at the way that Paul prays. And you just, when I hear that, I just long that someone would pray those same rich, wholehearted, generous things for me. But also how wonderful and what a privilege it is to pray them for others. That's the way Paul starts this hope-filled letter. He's in prison, let's not forget. The little church community in Colossae that are probably meeting in one or two houses in this medium-sized city face many challenges. But Paul says the deeper and truer picture of what's actually going on is brighter and sharper and deeper than they can imagine. They will need, as Paul has begun to, to learn to see and experience the world differently. At the start of this new year, with rare, we hope still being a slightly rare commodity and with countless reasons to be gloomy, here are my top three follow-ons from this fascinating early section of Paul's ancient letter. The first one is this. Did you notice how, how the gospel lands in a human heart, how it all begins? In verse 6, he says, Since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So how does, how does that seed of the gospel lands? It lands when we hear it and when we understand it. Now, some of you maybe have never heard it properly, fully. So no one's actually told me. Um, and if that is the case, then please come and talk to one of us. There are a few things that thrill a vicar more than someone saying, can you please explain the gospel to me? Literally, it's like in our top three things. So no minister or member of staff at this place is ever going to say to you, oh, I'm really sorry, I've got too much to do. You know, that's our thrill, that's our love. Maybe you've heard it, but you don't understand it. There's quite a few people in that category. You might understand lots of things. You might be really clever, and you might be brilliant at your job. 
but you don't really understand the gospel. That's okay. Nothing would give us more delight than to try to explain it or, or come on Alpha uh, where uh, we do the same. The gospel has to penetrate head and heart. It challenges, it undermines human pride, but it is fundamentally liberating. Now, for those of you who have heard the gospel and you do understand the gospel, however imperfectly, don't presume that people who say they aren't believers have either heard, let alone understood, the gospel. Many, many people who are antagonistic to Christian faith believe things about God that are entirely and utterly nonsense. They've not heard the gospel. They've not understood the gospel. They will need you to explain it, both in the way that you live, a life of thanks living, but also in your words that you're able to explain to them gracefully and truthfully. Tom Wright describes the gospel as the story that explains and the message that transforms. That's a beautiful way of understanding what we're up to, isn't it? We have a story that explains. It makes sense of the world, makes sense of the human condition, and makes sense of our need for purpose and identity. So we have a story that makes sense and explains things, but also it's not just something that in a sense diagnoses, it's something that transforms, that changes, that gets in under our skin and begins to make us different people. It transforms us, our community, our relationships. So how does the gospel land? It understands when people hear it and also that they understand it. The second observation is that we are surrounded, are we not, by anxious people who are seeking fulfillment. We're surrounded by people who are bemoaning their own fragility. They're longing to be good and to be seen as good, but they're disillusioned that they don't get close. People need good news, uh, but it's okay because we have good news. We really do. We have good news for the whole world, news about justice and peace and love and worship, good news for our life with God, he has acted in history to make us his own. Good news for our time here on earth. An identity that is not dependent on either my successes or my failures, but just on his grace. We have good news. Thirdly, every ideology, every political vision is continually put to the test and found wanting. When Epaphras stood up in Turkey nearly 2,000 years ago, to read this letter for the first time, every single bet in the world would have been on the might of imperial Rome, as opposed to this tiny, fledgling little group of people. Every single one of us would have bet on Rome to last the ages. And yet it was Rome that withered and failed, corrupt and redundant. Would you like to be part of a church that takes the gospel of Jesus seriously? Even more importantly, would you like to be part of a church that takes the gospel of Jesus joyfully, takes God at his word, believes that we have good news that makes sense of the world's beauty and its brokenness? 
Would you like to be part of a church that rises above the dismal little lies that our culture rams down our throats? Would you like to be part of a church that rejoices in the love and the grace of Jesus? A church that is experiencing a slow but sure transformation, learning to live in gratitude. A a church where thanks living is the norm. Would you like to be part of a church that is drawn into a life of hopeful, generous, unending prayer? Every generation has to do this afresh. We have to start again. We have to shake off institutional inertia and hopelessness. Every generation has to regain the radical loving edge that is so easily dulled by greed and by respectability. Nothing kills Christian faith quicker than greed and respectability. We have to retune each year, each generation, retune our hearts to the natural rhythms of God's grace. Sisters and brothers, we have good news at a time when our hurting world has never needed it or wanted it more. Amen.